Okay, let's uh, take our Bibles this morning and um, turn to Hebrews chapter 6. I confess that uh, being on a time away and then a little bit of vacation uh, to come back and preach the most difficult passage in the Word of God is a something that I wouldn't plan again. But nonetheless, this morning we're going to look at it. Uh, and I do want to let you know also, uh, for people who were asking, when I, when I had left, I, I was a little bit under the weather and sick, and I went to the doctors, got some blood tests uh, to see if I had uh, various things like shingles, uh, and all of them came back negative. And uh, so they still don't know what it is, but I think that after about a week and a half, it was rest I needed, and uh, I felt better after a week and a half. I still don't know what's wrong, but because uh, I have some things that are going on. But anyway, continue to pray for me, and we'll find out what, what that issue is. And then next week, uh, Pastor Glenn, who was our assistant pastor for about eight and a half years, will be here with us preaching. Uh, next week, he's on vacation, and I, I, I hooked him on vacation to preach, and I know that he, doesn't, he wants to take a rest too, but he said he would. And so he's going to be here next week uh, to break open the Word of God, and it's, it'll be a special treat for you to hear him preach. All right, but this morning, let's uh, take our Bibles and turn to Hebrews, and let me just give you an introduction from the last time to connect things this morning. Uh, I left you in chapter 5 uh, with a real problem the author ha- in Scripture had, and that problem was this, that he wanted to go on and teach about the son's typological relationship with Melchizedek. Now, that's a big thing, but he's going to get to that in chapter 7. All right? But he couldn't do it because he, he began to realize that there was a real problem in the congregation and that it was this, that the people were in a perpetual state of infancy. And they were babies. They were not growing spiritually. Now, it could have been they were not growing spiritually because of uh, persecution and because of the Judaizers that were around at that time. But he is really saying to them in this passage of Scripture, listen, uh, don't remain spiritual babies, but move ahead and come closer to the things of God. He said to them, you started off zealous, but you've become sluggish. In fact, he had a twofold problem I left you with, the immensity of the subject in verse 11 of chapter 5, right? Concerning him, we have much to say. There's a lot to teach when it comes to Jesus Christ because the whole word of God has to do with Christ, right? From Genesis to Revelation, it's about Christ. So there's a lot to teach. And you can't learn it in a day. And you can't even learn it in a few months. It must be a daily exercise of the mind on truth for you to grow. And it's something you can't back away from. You can't take a vacation from truth. So an unwillingness to work out the deeper implications of the gospel in your life or even to become reluctant or not to be serious about it, is really an ongoing problem. It's a problem that, um, that we all have to deal with it from time to time. A second problem was in verse number 11. They've become dull of hearing. They become sluggish in their hearing. Remember, I said there that this is a word that was used for... Uh, used for the the numb limbs of a sick lion. And if a lion is slow moving, if he is unable to catch his prey, it's just a matter of time that he'll grow weaker and weaker, become sick, and die, and he will become the hunted. That's a very sad and a pathetic thing. Well, the point is, it's sad and pathetic For someone who is supposed to be born again in Christ, have the living spirit in them, not grow. It doesn't, matter of fact, it doesn't go together. 
So the author is telling us, listen, I'm restricted in my communication. I can't go further. And also, I'm rest- you're restricted in your comprehension. You're not getting it. But you need to get it. Because it's vital to bear fruit in Christ. It's vital for you to go on and feed on, not milk like babies do, but feed on meat and potatoes and all the minerals and vitamins and nutrients that you get from a good, healthy diet. That's what's going to make you grow spiritually. So really it implies in verse number 11, chapter 5, that the readers were once keen of hearing, but they had fallen into a state of sluggishness, spiritually lazy. It also gives some hope, though, that their sluggishness doesn't need to be permanent. And that's the hope that we have. You, you and I may fall into times of being cold and sluggish spiritually, but we don't have to stay there. We shouldn't stay there, in fact. And the great scandal of today's church, today's evangelical church, is this. People who are saying they're Christians without Christian minds. For, most, for the most part, the evangelical Christian is grounded in ignorance. They are negligent of the responsibilities to study, to learn, to teach the truth about God's Son. So their understanding of the Christian life remains infantile. They're still babies, they remain babies. And so he explains in chapter 5, verse 12 and 13, this ineptitude that they have. He says this, you should be ba- you, you're babies when you should be teachers. You never got past the rudiments or the basics of Christianity 101. So you need to go back and be retaught the ABCs of basic doctrines. And then he says, listen, I can't feed you with meat. I only could feed you with milk, and I can barely do that. And you know that milk is only for little babies or for people who are sick. And then in verse number 13 of chapter 5, he says, listen, for everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. So he has a real problem on both sides, a communicating problem and a receiving problem. When you have that problem, that's a problem in the church, and that has to be rectified. In verse number 14, he gives a sense of rectifying the problems where he says this, listen, the problem is get into and stay in a spiritual gymnasium. He says, but solid food is for the mature, in verse 14, who became, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil, so this, from this very term, trained, we really get the word that we use in English, gymnasium. So it means to exercise vigorously, exercise the body and the mind. Of course, here it's exercising the mind spiritually to become so accustomed with the Word of God that you're able to make good judgments, you're able to make judgments that are in line with the Word of God, and in line with what you know, God determines what is good and evil. And see, that's where God wants to grow us. But you can't do it on milk. Because babies can't make decisions, can they? You can't tell a baby to go out and start your car in the morning. Right? It's not going to happen. Now, that's a pretty simple thing for somebody who's done it all the time, right? You don't even think about it. But for a baby, they can't do it. And he's saying... That's where you're at spiritually. That's not good. That's not good for any of us, is it? We need to go on and grow, but it's going to take your exercising yourself and exercising your mind so you can actually engage in deeper understanding of the Word of God. So in verse chapter 5, verse 11 onward, really, there's two things I want to bring to your attention today, and it's in verse number... Uh, chapter 6, verse 1 through 3, and then chapter 6, verse 4 through 8, is that he calls them to correct their present course and move towards spiritual maturity. And then also he warns them of the devastating consequences of apostasy. So therefore, 
believers are expected to move from being reluctant learners to lifelong learners. That's what we are. As soon as you become a believer, in fact, since I've been a pastor and a Christian, I have known several people who were illiterate before they became believers. Became believers, started to read and understand the Word of God and became teachers of the Word of God. Before that, they and these were people who were older in their life. It's pretty hard to learn how to read when you're older. But they were able to do that. Why? The Spirit of God came into them and gave them such a hunger to know the Word of God, they overcame the obstacle of learning the language. And so... For you and I, we should never think or want to be reluctant about learning, but we should be lifelong learners. For his audience there, they needed to advance in their understanding about Jesus. A lifelong learner really occurs by addressing more advanced teaching about the Son as the King Priest. And that's what he's going to be getting to. And I think such learning is not just facts. It's not just theory, but it's actually experiencing and engaging in an understanding of the Word of God. So learning does not occur, and this is his problem as a teacher in this chapter, by rehashing the basics of the faith. We can't keep going back. We can't get stuck in Christianity 101. We've got to keep going forward. So the point For this section of Scripture is simply this. Believers are not to rehash or wallow in the basics like reluctant learners, but rather they need to advance and press on to be lifelong learners about the Son as King Priest. That's what they're supposed to do. So that's what we're going to look at this morning. That's just by way of introduction to bring you up to date because I've been away for uh, several weeks. And so let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. And the scriptures give believers hope, yet, and an exhortation, but it also gives a harsh warning. And here's what we're going to see this morning. The first is this, that we're called. Believers are called to correct their present course if they're in a state of spiritual sluggishness, to correct it to arrest it, and to press on to spiritual maturity. Grow up spiritually, he is saying. We're called to do that. The Spirit of God is in us, and he will make us do that. So this is God moving us to look at ourselves, to see where we're at spiritually, and to keep going. Now, this is what he does. He says, the first thing he says to you is this. In verse number one, notice what he says. Therefore leaving the elementary teaching about Christ. That's Hebrews 6, 1. So we're to first leave something. What are we to leave? We're we're to leave the very basics of what it is to be a Christian, what it is to get saved. He doesn't mean leave it completely and forget about it. What he means is that, listen, this is the foundation. Now build on that foundation and go ahead. And he begins to list what those elementary things are that every single believer, every single Christian has to believe to be saved. And here's the first one. In verse number one, he says this, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, the first one is not laying again a foundation of what? Repentance, right? So repentance is the first basic element of Christian faith. All right, what is it? Repenting is a foundational Doctrine taught by the prophets of old, taught by John the Baptist, taught by Jesus Christ, taught by the apostles, taught by every gospel preaching preacher who was sincere and uh, handled the word of God correctly since then. So in the New Testament, the call to repent is the call to turn from personal sin and evil deeds. But here, because it has a Jewish background to it, it is a call to repent from any of man's empty, empty attempts to self-salvation, right? Saying that some religious system can save you. I'm this, I'm that, I'm this, I'm that in a religious system. And people trust 
the system to save them. They trust themselves to save them. They trust everything to save them, but the one that God gave to save us, and that's Jesus Christ. So repentance is basic. You know what? People don't even know that. You don't even hear people preach repentance anymore. If you're not even preaching the very elements, the very basics, then you're really in trouble. So see, and it also says this, that every believer has to repent of the way they were going and what they were trusting in and trust in Christ. There must be a day that you repented of your sin, of trying to save yourself, and trust in Christ to save you. There must be a time that happened in your life. There must be a time of repentance. If some people say, well, I don't know, I, I never repented. One, I was, we were talking to one woman this past uh, week, and she says, well, I heard of a woman who says, listen, I, I've been a believer since I was little. My mom told me I prayed a prayer when I was five, and that was my conversion experience. No, it's not. That's not a conversion experience. That's maybe your mom hoping that you would become a believer. You yourself have to have some kind of conversion experience where you repent of your sin. Now, it could be a great blown-out experience, or it could be a, a quietness in, in sitting in your room or sitting in a pew or sitting somewhere saying, Lord, I'm a sinner. I deserve hell and condemnation because of my sin, and I want to turn from that and trust completely in you for salvation. That's repentance. But then we repent regularly. But this is the basic. A second basic in verse number one is this. Placing our faith in God. Look what it says. And a faith toward God. Isn't that the message? Acts chapter 20, verse 21. Solemnly testifying both to Jews and Greeks of repentance towards God and what? Faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith is a basic of the gospel. All of us must have faith in God. Or faith, or we turn in repentance to the Father and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ is the one that was provided for our substitute to be saved. And then a third thing found in verse number two is of instruction about washings and laying on of hands. And this seems a little bit difficult if you read the passage there, but actually the word comes from a word, washings, that means baptism, all right? So this word washings is in the plurals, and so it can refer to the difference between Christian baptism and the baptisms under the former economy. Remember, people, before they came to Christ in that time, went through John the Baptist's baptism, didn't they? And that was a baptism unto repentance, So there's going to be a difference between uh, his baptism and a Christian baptism, right? But it does mean to baptize. And then back then, usually when people were baptized, they had their hands laid on them because there was a transfer of them coming to Christ, hearing the word of truth, believing it, all right? Then being baptized and receiving the Spirit of God was what? Like one, one package deal. It all happened at once. So the phrase laying on of hands in verse number two may refer to the early practice of laying on the hands during believers' water baptism. And the laying on the hands was used to symbolic, was, was symbolic of the act of identification uh, and also of the apostles' ministry when the Holy Spirit initially was poured out on the early church. And you find that all through the book of Acts where it says, like in Acts chapter 8, verse 17, and they began laying their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. We know that baptism was part of that. And then in Acts 19, 6, when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. So repentance, forgiveness of sins, baptism, the coming of the Spirit was one package. It happened at once when somebody came to faith, when they repented, had faith in Christ, and they were baptized, right? That was all part of it. And so he was saying, this is basics. And then in verse number two, he says, here's another basic, the resurrection of the dead. Isn't that a basic of Christianity? Isn't that a basic of, of coming to faith? To believe in the good teaching of the future, that death is not the end? Who knows that better than a believer? That we are promised a resurrected body. It was a belief that, listen, physical death is not the end. We have an opportunity to live for God here 
and we have an opportunity and we will be promised a body that will be without sin, perfect, never to die again when we are finally when the resurrection comes. That's a basic truth. Remember, Jesus not only died, but he what? Rose from the dead. You have to believe that, right? Why? He defeated Satan and death at the cross. And so there, if he defeated it, then he defeated it for me and for you too. So I have that hope. I have that assurance. Every believer does. And so if I have it, keep going. Keep learning. All the things that come under that and behind that and around that. And then in verse number two, notice another basic, eternal judgment. Death Resurrection and judgment were clearly linked as part of the basic Christian doctrine of the Word of God. You can't get away from it. Those are the basics. That's what we build on uh, the rest of our Christian life. In fact, new believers, once they learn that, once they come to Christ, they go from a new believers class to a a class where they're growing more in the Word of God to a a place where they're being challenged on a higher level to... uh, be a spiritual father, to live by faith, and that's where Hebrews is heading, to be able to live by faith every day of my life. I trust God for what's going on in my life. Why? He's taking care of everything for you and I. So there is the call to move away from, to advance from the basic teaching of salvation. And then look at verse number 1. The end of verse number 1, he says this in chapter 6. Or, excuse me, in uh, verse number... Verse number uh, 1, he tells us this in verse 2. Listen, uh, let us press on to maturity in verse number 1. Christ, let us press on to maturity. He tells them, listen, press on to maturity to, that means to get moving. And I had one Reformed theologian remind me uh, in my reading that it is very, it's a very important truth to know this, that it is not possible of one born of the Holy Spirit not to grow. It is not possible for one born of the Holy Spirit not to grow. The point is, is going to become clear. If you never grow, you are never a believer. If you never grow, you never have the Spirit of God. And the question is, is it, once a person makes a profession of faith in Christ, it is it God's will to grow? Well, look at verse number 3. The author was confident in his audience, that they would progress in maturity, where he says this in verse 3, and this we will do if God permits. In fact, the phrase, if God permits, does not ask if God's, it is God's will to mature in Christ, but rather assumes by the structure it is his will. So if, I, if you were to ask, is it God's will to grow once you become a baby Christian, to grow to a young man, to grow to an adult? Yes, it's God's will. If it's God's will, it will happen. It's going to take place. But there's a cooperation on our side, too. You can't sit there like just a bump on a log and think you're going to get it all. You have to actually think. You actually have to, have to engage your mind and heart. You have to go out there and practice it. You have to do those things that God called us to do because it is God's will for you to mature in Jesus Christ. And then look at verse number 9 of chapter 6. It says, But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and the things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. He is saying to his audience, that's why I believe he's talking to, um, he's talking to a saved audience, they, they are not growing in their faith, but some have not grown at all, and some have fallen away. And so he's going to address that issue right uh, at this particular point. So the point here is this. The reason why it is possible for the believer to press on to maturity is the fact that the basic issues of life Faith, death, resurrection has been settled by the finished work of Christ. It's done. 
If it's done, this mic is really not working very well today. If it's done, then it's done. All right? And that's, if you're not sure about your salvation, then you're not going to grow where you ought to go. But if I'm sure about it because of what the Word of God tells me that happened in my life, then I will grow. I will move forward. I will progress. Therefore, you and I, like the Hebrews, are free to get on with the business of living. We are to get on with the business of living for Jesus because he has resolved forever the question of our relationship with God. That's what gives us confidence. I have faith in God. I know I'm a believer. I know where I'm going if I die today. So therefore, live with gusto for Christ because I'm confident in that. It's not based on me. I can't save myself. No church can save me. No religion can save me. But Christ can save me. And once he saves me, I can grow. And I can grow past what I think I can, where I think I can grow. In fact, what happens when you become a Christian is that God gives you the capacity to learn something you could have never learned before. And that's about God, about who he is, what he wants, his will for your life. He, you can know that and know it with confidence, right? So if somebody comes and tells you, when Satan comes and pounds you and saying, say all kinds of things against you, uh, you know, you're worthless, God wouldn't want you, and all those things that he does, and he's good at accusing the brethren, you have to say, Satan, listen, you have to deal with my Lord because he saved me. I didn't save myself. Yeah, I'm a sinner. I am worthless. But Christ makes, gives me worth, and he gives me a chance to be a child of his family. So, listen, he's my heavenly father. You have to deal with him. You have to deal with my dad. And so, therefore, you go deal with him. My salvation is settled in Christ. It's not me you have the issue with. It's him. And you know what? He's already defeated you. He's already defeated you. See, when I know those things, I can grow. I can be confident. I can go share the gospel. I can go uh, anywhere and do that. Now, here's the situation in Scripture. There's a group of people that professed Christ were introduced as Jews to the very intimate things of what God has been doing all through history, and they fall away. So this becomes the most difficult portion in the Word of God because this whole section of Scripture we are dealing with from this point on rates probably the most controversial text in the new testament just to give you a sense of what i mean here are six of the most prevalent interpretations of these passages the first one is this these believers have slipped back into unbelief and have lost their salvation second one is this is a hypothetical situation that could have never happened or is used to demonstrate the foolishness of the panic within the hebrews not to hold fast to the faith instead of going on in the faith. And so they were sticking. A third one is that these are saved people who have fallen into sin and will lose their reward. A fourth is that these are professing believers but stop short of true faith who never possess salvation. A a fifth one is those who received enlightenment about salvation, tasting the heavenly gift, have become partakers in the Holy Spirit, never received Jesus as Lord and Savior, and six, that they are saved people being exhorted to mature in Christ. Now, you would say, well, what's your position? Well, my position is, because of the flow of the text, would be that he's speaking to saved people who are babies that need to go forward. But within that group, what happened from that group is that some have professed, but have fallen completely away, and these are called apostates in Scripture. So I believe there's a couple things going on in Scripture. So here's the second thing. He calls us to mature. Here's the second thing he he calls us to in the sense he points us to the harsh warning. The harsh warning and the devastating consequences of apostasy. Now, an apostate is simply someone who has been introduced to the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, 
and maybe has lived in that realm of being a Christian for a while and has dropped off. But they've not, not, they don't just drop off. Their whole attitude of Christ becomes evident. And so that's what he's going to warn them of. And it's a very harsh warning because he is saying to them, listen, if there are some among you who have not grown, it's a possibility you may slip off into apostasy because you were never saved in the first place. So it's a call to examine yourself. That these apostates have come under the influence of the message of the good news of Jesus Christ. The gifts that God has given to the Jews and to humanity because of the Savior. And the blessings that flow from those things and come to the children of God. They've had some dabbling in those things. So he's not just talking about people who are just drift away because they get cold. He's talking about people who fall away. Look at verse number four. He begins to say this. For in the case of those who have become enlightened. Now, this is the language he is using. The word enlightened means to shed light upon. So this person... Of course, if they were Hebrews, don't forget, they have the Hebrew Scriptures, right? They have the oracles of God. They have the prophets. They have everything that a lot of the world didn't have to come to know Messiah, Jesus Christ, as their Savior. So they've had for years the word of righteousness come to them. So these people were informed They were enlightened to the principles of Christianity. They even had known the way of righteousness. Here's the way to be saved. Jesus the Messiah. That's your salvation. That's what the prophets, that's what the Old Testament's been saying all along. In fact, Melchizedek is a type of Messiah. Second thing he says about them in verse 4 and 5 is that they have tasted of the heavenly gift. That the word taste means really more than mere sampling. It speaks of full participation. So it, 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 it's a, it gives a sense that these people were in the community. They were in the community of those who were active in professing Messiah as Savior. It wasn't just a sampling. That the heavenly gift is the gospel of the revelation of mercy through Jesus Christ. And to taste the heavenly gift is, in a sense, to experience the heavenly gift. They were introduced to the gospel. So these are our people who, to a certain degree, understood and relished in the revelation of mercy. Wow, this is the way to be saved. This is God's message. And then it says, and they became partakers of the Holy Spirit. They they saw the Holy Spirit work in people. It could even mean that they were understood the Holy Spirit from the Old Testament and even the miracles that the apostles had done in the Gospels and in in the book of Acts was very well known to them. They could even, some there had a firsthand accounts of seeing the Spirit of God work. And seeing the Spirit of God work in the congregation of someone who's genuinely a believer and see people transformed right before their eyes and change, turn from their evil deeds to God and their whole life changed. They seen and they were involved with and partakers of the Holy Spirit. And then it says there, and they've tasted the good word of God. They had come to understand the tasteful influence of the word of God concerning the promise of, of God respecting the Messiah and that God had been faithful to his promise and that promise being fulfilled in Christ. But one thing we we know we're we're not going to see anymore from these people is that they no longer see Christ on the pages of the Old Testament. They don't see Christ in, in the inspired words of the apostles. 
So, so you have to ask these que- this question. If these people are in the congregation, if these people have professed Christ, if these people have had, had a chance to taste the good word of God, and if these people are well informed about what the prophets were saying about the coming of Messiah, and now they have come to the place where they know how to get saved. I'm going to say it like that. They know the basics of how to be made right with God. It wasn't Judaism. It wasn't the religions around them. You couldn't save yourself by good works. They began to understand that. And they said, wow, they were... They were engaged in that type of thinking. They had come under the full influence of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the only way of salvation. Now, you would say, if somebody came under that influence, man, they they have to get saved, right? If there's nowhere else to go for truth and the way of salvation, then uh, you come to the end of it and say, there's nowhere else to go, then, then I have to believe. That's the conclusion. I have to believe in Christ. He's the only way. He's the only way who died in my place. The only way that satisfied the wrath of God. He's the only way, the only one who is able to, who's passed from the, into the heavens and he's become my high priest who intercedes for me. He's the only way who can take me into the presence of God. He's the only one who could do it. Right? So who are these people? What happened to them? Well, look at verse number six. There's three things that I want you to see about verse six is this, number one, now let me just say this, when one, like the Jew, comes under the message of the way of salvation through Jesus Christ, they really do have to make a choice. And they could make a profession of faith and say, yeah, I believe this. But look at what happens to them in verse 6. And let me read the verse. It says, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put him to an open shame. They fall away. Meaning this, they refuse the message. They refuse it. Whatever happened, they no longer are willing to hold to the essential aspect of Christian belief. They drop out of the contest. This means they, they've fallen away. They can, cannot... And falling away, let me just say this, falling away cannot mean lose salvation because it's not possible to lose one's salvation. If it was possible to lose one's salvation, then the text would mean such individuals could never again become saved because it says there it's impossible. And if you've been around long enough, you may have seen some who have come And they're excited about the things of God. And then in a short period of time, they quit everything, right? And they go back. Their zeal evaporates, and they go back to the way they lived before. And even when you go back to talk to them, they'll say, Oh, yes, it was so great to be amongst those people. The message is great. I still believe in Jesus, but I'm doing my own thing here. I don't need to go to church. I don't need to know more of the Word of God. I I know I'm saved now. And uh, and so they go on, and, and... They may have been converted to a group. They may have been converted to a church. They may have been converted to the likability of these Christians and the cool things they do in their worship. But I tell you what, if they fall away this way, they were never converted to Christ because they've never grown. But that's not it. Their whole demeanor towards Jesus Christ changes. So not only do they refuse the basics of the faith, but they abuse the message. In verse number 6, notice what it says. Since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God, putting Him 
to an open shame. Now, what does that mean? You know what it means? That they actually identify themselves with Christ's persecutors on Good Friday who deliberately mocked, ridiculed, rejected, and humiliated Jesus publicly during the crucifixion and finally cried out, crucify him, crucify him. If you are the Son of God, then you get yourself down from the cross. They become part of the lawless and godless crowd that surrounded the events of the cross that caused our Savior to be crucified. So you see that they abuse the message. They abuse the very person. They want to get rid of Christ now. That's what an apostate does. He wants to rid Christ and the message of Christ from the earth. That's what it means by crucifixion. They didn't want him as the Messiah or as the Savior. That's why they crucified him. So these people align with that group of people. And then the next thing in verse 6 that happens is they forfeit God's blessing. Look what it says. It is impossible to renew them again to repentance. Now, that's a difficult statement. And why it's difficult is because when you think of the word impossible, you have to say impossible in reference to whom? If it's in reference to God, then all things are possible. But if it's in reference to man, and I believe that's the assertion here, and the point is this, that it is impossible by any renewed course of elementary instruction to bring back such apostates to the acknowledgement of the truth if they outright reject the basics. What am I going to teach them? Auto mechanics? As a Christian? What am I going to teach them if they totally reject it and outwardly abuse it? Do you realize these people consign themselves to the impossibility of ever being instructed again in the gospel? That's the impossibility. See, once... Well, if you, if you refuse to listen to Moses and the prophets, I can't send someone to hell to preach, to, to rescue them. Jesus said in the parable of, of uh, Lazarus, right? The rich man and, and Lazarus. If you don't listen to Moses and the prophets, there's no other message. Right? But who did Moses and the prophets speak of? Christ. Right? So see, Moses and the prophets spoke of Christ. If you reject the basic tenets of their message that pointed to him as the only way to be saved, there is no other teaching. I have nothing to teach you. You outright rejected it. You, you trampled it. You abused it. And therefore, because you abused it, you forfeited an opportunity to be saved. And once, once the spiritual appetite is lost, like this, how difficult it is for someone to be brought back to repentance. Because what are they going to repent of to? See, with all this exposure, they had not become different There was no change of mind concerning the truth as it is in Jesus Christ. Instead of counting Jesus as the Messiah, they concluded he was an imposter. Instead of considering Christianity as the true and only way of salvation, they concluded that it was a cunning, devised fable. 
instead of concluding that salvation through Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, as a revelation that came from God and is the will of God, they concluded it was a hellish delusion. How are you going to renew somebody who's at that point with the elementary teachings of the gospel? You're not. Now, we must at least make this observation that we're not dealing with a with the sincere believer here who is in despair about some spiritual failure in his life. Neither are we dealing with a backslider who has temporary lost interest in the things of God. We're not dealing with that in this passage of Scripture. This person is one who is in fierce opposition to Christ after knowing the truth. They're in opposition to the gospel, and their opposition is now public. It is a rebellion against Christian things, and it's a determination to bring Christ's work to an end. So now they have switched as being professors of Christ to being enemies of the cross, and they're now public with it. And it just shows who they are. It just shows their true colors. Matter of fact, you know what it shows? It shows their real fruit. And it's not the fruit of genuine salvation. It is the fruit of unregeneration. They were never regenerate, in other words. But remember this, that the main purpose of this letter was to urge these Jewish Christians not to allow themselves under the pressure of persecution to abandon the distinctly Christian aspects of their faith and slip back into Judaism. That was the temptation. Or to slip back into Catholicism. Or to slip back into Buddhism. Or to slip back into some other faith that you were once delivered from if you became a Christian. I can't, you know as a Christian, you can't go back that way. I got to go forward, right? And the more and more you know of Christ, the more and more you mature in truth, you know you can't go that way. I have to go this way. I have to follow Christ. I have to grow in Christ. And I know I don't know enough about Christ. And I want to see the fruit that the Spirit of God is, is producing in my life. Anyone who refuses to grow spiritually or returns to a system of good works. And all religions are systems of good works. All of them. Every one of them. The only one that is not, is not a system at all. It is the person. And that's the mercy of God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And that's by faith. Grace, it's a free gift. There's no works involved, right? If I abandon that, I have to go back to a work system. I must, there's no other way to go. But if I go back there, I am in dangerous territory. If one ultimately concludes that Jesus is not the way, the truth, and the life, they are simply saying this, that the work on the cross was not enough to save. And I have to add something to it. Because it's just not enough well if you're there then you are in deep error and need to get out of that if they don't they forfeit the blessing of god see an honest question has to come up at this point were these were these people really ever saved at all I, i'm pretty much answered that already but we're confronted with some who have made a profession of faith and formerly had visible signs and marks of being a truly committed Christian, but by their refusal to grow and continue in the faith, they now give fruit that they were not generally born again at all. 
They were not born again by God's Spirit, that's for sure. They may have convinced others that they were believers. And at one time, they may may even persuaded themselves that they belonged to Christ. When people who continue in their sin, and you go to them and say, yeah, I'm a believer, and they convince themselves or deceive themselves that they're a believer when they've been sinning for year after year after year after year. I would say, let's go back to the basics of the gospel and make sure that you're a believer, right? That's, that's the 101 of, of Christian counseling because many times a, a somebody will come to a counselor and you'll realize this person never understood the gospel. They never really believed in Jesus Christ. They never repented of their sin. And yet they've been in the Christi- around the Christian community. And so that's a great opportunity to share the gospel with them, to be saved. So I, I can't say that I, I meet a lot of people in this particular position of apostasy, but there are some. And there will be some in the future. Well, anyway, their, their conversion is spurious. It's, it's a counterfeit. When tested for their faith, and that many times the test of the faith is persecution, they didn't hold on. They became rebels to the work of Christ and dropped off. Now, remember this, that real regeneration results in the believer possessing the radical transform nature does it not that a new nature that is predisposed now to holiness as the old nature was predisposed to sin in regeneration god gives the dead sinner a new heart god also puts his holy spirit within the saint causing them to walk in his statutes that this renewed and spiritually alive nature now drives that person who is now a saint of God to be faithful, to be obedient, and to be reverent to God and to desire to want to grow. He wants to go grow spiritually. He wants to grow in practical righteousness because the seed of God abides in him and he no longer wants to persistently sin because he's truly born of God. Now, that's right from Scripture, actually, First John chapter 3. So the believer can't lose his regenerate nature. The Bible never speaks of regenerate people reverting back to their unregenerate condition or old natures, changing them back into old ones. Losing salvation would necessarily require reversing regeneration, and that can't happen. It is precisely that concept that a man who wrote a little booklet called Robert Spiney said, the concept of unregeneration, unregeneration that is nowhere to be found in the Bible. So we can never say that someone lost their salvation. we must conclude that they never had it in the first place. And someone who gives this evidence, it's even impossible to renew them to repentance again because they have outright rejected from the bottom of their feet to their heart and mind the very basics of what it means to be saved. There's nothing else I could teach them. Now, like I said, with men, it's it's impossible. What with God, God could still rescue someone like that, but I don't know. Now, what's the issue then in this text? You know what the issue is? This is what the issue is. When you become a Christian, you know what the issue is? Fruit. Fruit. What's on your branches? What's hanging there on your branches? We were driving through Ventura, California, going down to uh, the beach and we drove through the orange groves and the lemon groves. Wow, what a beautiful sight. Sun gleaming and bright oranges on these green trees and bright yellow lemons on these trees. It's really a sight. But you know what? If I plant a lemon tree, what should I expect? Lemons. If I plant an orange tree, what should I expect? If the Spirit of God is planted in your heart, what should you expect? 
you should expect Christian fruit, right? The fruit of the Spirit. If that's never there, then come on. Let's be honest. There's no salvation. If that's never there, or you're an outright rejecter of the very basics of truth because you have your own philosophy on, on religion, and there's no fruit like that, then come on. Let's be honest here. There is no salvation. So the issue is fruit. Right? Now, look at what it says in verse 7 and 8. Here's an illustration from agriculture, just in case you didn't get it. It says, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. All right? Now, that's pretty clear, right? The rain seeps into the ground, right? The vegetation soaks up the rain with all the minerals and nutrients of the soil, and it grows and it bears fruit. Look at verse 8. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed, and it ends up being burned. Now, what is he talking about here? He's saying this. Listen, the good land... And the bad, the bad land, the bad, the good soil and the bad soil have received both the riches, rich blessings of God's rain. One produces vegetation and receives a blessing of God. It continues to grow. It continues to flourish. It continues to bear fruit. One bears useless. One is useless and harmful thorns and bears uh, uselessness and harmful thorns and receives God's present curse and future destruction. Just like the genuine believer receives all the goodness of the word of God and everything that comes with it, and the apostate here received the same thing. One, in, one fell into fertile ground, soaked up all the promises and blessings of God, and what happened? It ended up being eternal life, right? It ended up being the blessings of God's rich goodness. But the other soaked up the same thing. But what bore there, it didn't land in good soil, it landed in stony ground, right? Just like the parable of the sower. And it bore what? When persecution and tribulation came, it died off. It was useless. It didn't produce any good thing. And you know what? When a tree gets to that point, Somebody will say, well, let's save it one more year. Let's dig around it. Let's put some, some uh, nutrients in there and see if that thing will grow. But if it doesn't grow the next year, you know what you're thinking about doing to that tree, right? Cutting it down. And what do you do? Throw it away. You burn it. You throw it in the fire. It's the same thing here. Somebody can go along. They can have a profession of faith their whole life and never bear any fruit. Well, then their heart wasn't right the seed of god's word didn't sleep into the soil and bear spiritual fruit they had no desire for god's word to grow in god's word to know more about the basics of what happened to them see if somebody is in that condition they're not a christian if they have become dull though and sluggish you know what you need to do let's go teach them again they're not at the apostate phase yet let's go teach them look at verse number 12 of chapter 6 so that you will not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promise yes that's it i grow and i grow and grow and and i grow why so i can be an imitator to those who are looking at my life about the faith that i have in christ and the, the fruit that god bore in my life And in doing that, I can, through faith and patience, inherit the promise that I learn to live by faith. And I learn also to live by being patient with God's will and how God does things. And while I'm doing that, I hold to the promises, all the promises God's given me that are not yet fulfilled. Right? How many promises that you and I have that are not yet fulfilled? Because Christ said they're not yet fulfilled. You have the down payment the wedding ring of the Holy Spirit living in you that bears fruit, 
That is what you spend time with. You spend time on growing. You cannot grow apart from the Word of God. If there's no desire for the Word of God, there's a problem. So there is a warning to all believers, especially to those who have become dull of hearing, callous, and stagnant in their faith, that you must leave spiritual infancy behind and move forward, move toward maturity in Christ. That's the admonition. That's the exhortation. Now, it is appropriate because of this message for all believers to genuinely examine themselves to see whether they're in the faith at all, right? Isn't that appropriate? Isn't that good to know? Don't you want to know? Don't you want to be assured assured of the things God's doing? It's also appropriate for all believers from time to time to honestly examine whether they are living in the faith. Are you living in the faith? It is good for believers to ask, am I storing up in my mind the truths of God's word? Am I living by them? Have I developed, have you developed an appetite for more solid food? Ask, am I growing and progressing in my faith? Or has my growth been arrested by the destructive weeds and thorns of anxiety and materialism and pragmatism that we all deal with every single day in our life? Because don't forget, worry and greed are enemies of the word. They betray a failure to trust God especially God's fatherly care for us every day. And we can get be wrapped up in that. We can be wrapped up in things that pull us away and suck our desire for the Word of God, even our energy to learn the Word of God. So remember, spiritual security does not depend on a clear recollection of the moment of your conversion. Don't get me wrong. But the issue is fruit right now. Are you bearing fruit now? Some people can't remember exactly how they came to Christ. But they know they repented, turned, and want to follow, and they desire the word. So are you bearing fruit? The issue is fruit. By your fruits you will what? Know them. And also, it's by God's love for you and his grasp on you. Don't forget, you don't keep yourself saved. God keeps you saved. And how do I know that I'm saved? Because God loves me. And if God loves me, he has my best at hand. He is my loving heavenly father, right? Like Gabe says, you wake up every morning and God's no longer your enemy. He loves you. That, that, that changes the whole dynamic of the game, right? So that means... That's how I'm supposed to live. And when you live like that, and when you desire his word, and when you meditate upon his word, and you put your word, his word into practice, and you use your spiritual gifts, and you bear fruit in your life, it gives you more confidence to live for Christ, and it gives you more desire to know more of what God has done, starting on all the basics of the foundation of your faith for the rest of your life. And then one day, boom, our faith will turn to what? Sight. And we will see Jesus. You know what? And everything else will fade away. And everything we know about Christ will get filled in. All the blanks will get filled in. And it's going to be a hallelujah party. Amen? All right. So remember this. Part of the fruit of the Spirit is joy. Are you joyful? Are you joyful in your heart? Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word of God. Lord, let us honestly and soberly examine ourselves to make sure that we're in the faith, to make sure that we're living in the faith, and Lord, that we're bearing fruit, 
the fruit, the spiritual fruit that you have accomplished in believers' lives by giving them the Spirit. And we know, Lord, the author of the Word of God is the Holy Spirit, so he's going to use the Word to grow us. Lord, give us that desire to want to know more. And Lord, let us grow. And as we grow, Lord, increase our faith. Increase our patience. Let us see you for who you are. Let us go beyond the basics. And Lord, let us understand you as the king priest who now sits in heaven and intercedes for his children who's going to come back again. And Lord, I pray that we learn more of that as we proceed through the book of Hebrews. And now, Lord, as we prepare for the Lord's table, make us ready, Lord, to again know that the elements that you've given us the bread that represents the body of Christ, the incarnation, Christ coming into the world, dying in our place, and then the, blood, the grape, uh, fruit of the vine that represents the blood of Christ. Thank you, Lord, that we're able to know that because of your shed blood, you are the once and for all sacrifice. Never again does anyone have to accomplish this. It's finished, it's complete, it's over, and our salvation in Christ now is secure because of it. And so, Lord, we thank you. So make us ready, Lord, to partake of the elements and this time of a solemn examination, yet a joyful, uh, uh, just a joyful time thinking about what you've done for us. And I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.